Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora, I'm Claire Finlayson, Programme Director of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. The 2019 festival recording that you're about to hear was brought to you with funding from a copyright licensing New Zealand grant and with the support of ORFM. This session, The War on Truth, featuring Stephen Davis, was chaired by Guy and Espiner and presented by Brandade with the support from the Friends of the Library. Enjoy. Nai mai, haere mai, piki mai, kāke mai, nā mihi o te pō, o tēnā tātou, ko a whakarau i ko mai, rāro i te tuwerui o tānei, whakipiripiri, ki āku nui, ki āku rahi, ki āku rangatira, tēnā kaitau, kātou, ko Guy and Espiner tōku ingoa, I'm Guy and Espiner, thanks very much for coming, um, with me here on the stage, Stephen Davis, a big round of applause for him. Thank you. Stephen Davis has spent uh, three decades in journalism working for some of the biggest media organisations, some of the most high-profile ones. Sunday Times uh, in London, LA Times too, wasn't it? Uh, I was in LA for the Sunday Times. Oh, there we are. That's... uh uh, that, that's a combination of the two. 60 Minutes here in New Zealand and edited the New Zealand Herald uh, in his mid-40s. Uh, so pretty impressive uh, journalism career and uh, now a leading educator in journalism too. So uh, today we're going to be talking about his book, Truth Teller, um, where he takes us through, uh, in a fascinating way, the toolkits of deception. We'll talk about um, some of that. But this session has been, oh, we'll open it up for questions too, uh, at around, um, you know, about the 45-minute mark. So I'm sure that there'll be lots of uh, questions about the subject because it's um, one of the biggest issues we face today, really, isn't it? Stephen, we've built this session as the war on truth. Who's winning? Uh, the liars are winning, the deceivers are winning, the corporations and governments thinking of clever ways uh, of, dis- of lying to you are winning. And the reason they're doing it is simple. We are simply awash in misinformation and disinformation. There's so much of it flooding around the world. That's number one. Number two, our ability to detect the stuff is lessened. And number three, that group that we really relied on to, um, to sort the stuff out for us, journalists, there's fewer of us around, and we're not well-resourced. As a consequence, uh, you're getting lied to on a, on a regular basis. And there's one more important thing to say, and that's that many of you in this room, I'm afraid, are fairly guilty people. About a quarter of you, according to a study, would have shared false information this week, and one in eight of you, you can put your hands up now, uh, did so knowing the information was false. Uh, Why would you do that desire for social media acceptance or simply the fact that often untruths are more exciting and interesting than the truth? So what has changed? And you've, as I said at the outset, spent three decades in journalism. Why are we at this point now? What are the drivers of those problems you've just talked about? People have always lied to you. There's always been fake news. Uh, Now I think our attention spans... Uh, you know, the news cycle, 24 hours, now it seems to be an hour. Um, our attention spans are less. I think we're frustrated with the volume of information on social media, so we kind of 
we tend to shrug it off. Um, sometimes we pass on things like conspiracy theories because we think they're interesting and entertaining. And so all of stuff is just washing round in an ocean of falsehoods. And then, of course, very smart people who work for people like Putin and Trump and politicians and corporations understand this. They understand we're in a sea of misinformation. So they think it's a perfect way to hide actual scandals and actual stories and knowing that people like you and I, investigative reporters, have less time than we ever had to investigate this stuff. Well, they say that a lie can get round the world and that the time it takes for truth to get its pants on. Um, you, you open the book with such a scenario. Yes, absolutely. Again, to um, look at... This is a fairly authoritative study, by the way, by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, so that falsehoods move more rapidly on Twitter than, than the truth. Um, and it's gone, it's out there, millions of people have seen it before the media can even keep up with it. Uh, the example I start the book um, from the Obama presidency was a story that went around the world saying he was travelling to India and was spending tens of millions on the trip, and the th a third of the US Navy was going, and Fox News went wild. I mean, you know, they slammed him left, right, and center. Republican Congress people stood up and repeated the story again and again. Um, it wasn't true. I mean, it wasn't even close to being true. And that speaks to a really powerful technique in this day and age. Uh, which I explain in the book called The Big Lie. And, it, and it's based on the way our minds work. Our minds are trained to... That information that's familiar to us is information we can trust. You think about that, it's quite logical. So what happens is you tell a big lie and initially a lot of people might not believe you. Then you repeat <coughs> it again and again and again endlessly and you get other people to repeat it for you like a feedback loop. And you can track this stuff, and eventually after <coughs> a year or two, a lot of people believe what started as the lie. And let's not forget, Donald Trump made his name, made his bones in the Republican Party by um, uh, the Obama birther theory, you know, that whole nonsense about his birth certificate. Now, when he first talked about that, the numbers of Republican voters believing him were under 10%. And he was disowned by the entire Republican Party, mainstream Republican Party. Two years later, after endlessly repeating it again and again and again, more than 50% of Republican voters believed it was true, and he'd made his name, and look where we are now. He became president of the United States. And... Often it's more effective if you play to a prejudice, right? I mean, because the, the prejudice was um, his name sounds a bit funny or his name sounds like it could be a Muslim name. Um, so you were playing to that prejudice. Um, yep. And there are numerous examples, aren't there, every day where if you play to someone's prejudice, whatever their value set, then you can get them to believe something quite preposterous. Absolutely. And uh, let's face it, um, Barack's middle name was Hussein, and that to <coughs> many people in America was a red flag, mm. and he played to that. Um, yes, I mean, whatever you think of Trump and Putin, I've mentioned them both together, for, not just for the obvious reason, because they use the same sort of techniques. 
um, which I tracked, they're very clever people. They know how to push the right button. And so people, while blinded with prejudice, of course, then won't rationally analyse the information in front of them. And you can, as, as you just said, tell them the most outrageous nonsense and, and they'll believe it. Mm. You've organised this book in an interesting way and you, you start with that, um, that story about fake news spreading. And then you talk about and give us the, the toolkits uh, for deception. Tell us about that because you, um, you start with the idea um, of the different ways in which not only governments, corporations, other people with power, the techniques they use to deceive. Take us through some of them. Yes, one very effective technique and one thing I'm really hot on is conspiracy theories. Now... People seem to like conspiracy theories. People believe them, share them, think they're entertaining and interesting. Um, I have to tell you, I think they're positively, absolutely dangerous and can kill and have been shown they can kill recently in Christchurch. There's a technique used by people and it's to um, create a whole lot of your own conspiracy theories to cover up something you've done. Uh, An example from the book... Uh, Skripal, a former Russian intelligence agent in England, he gets poisoned. It's reasonably clear the Russians did it. I mean, two of their officers happen to be caught on CCTV camera, happen to be in the same place at the same time. Within 10 days of that story, four different conspiracy theories were floating around the world, all having started in a small place in St. Petersburg. So now if you look back on that story, if I say, go and investigate what happened to this guy, and you just come back to me and say, well, hold on, there are five different conspiracy theories about this now. Um, do we know what to believe? Mm. What a very, very effective technique um, to disguise things. What is your view? Because we're faced with this in journalism quite a lot, and one of the most famous local examples recently may well have been uh, Jacinda Ardern's partner. Now, the, and how there was a story going around about what, what he had supposedly done. And it, went to, it, it, it was exchanged and gossiped about so much, mm. the police came out and actually issued a statement saying, we're not investigating this guy. Um, and the media ran stories about something that, that hadn't happened. So it, it's, a, it's a funny situation, isn't it, to be in? Do you just ignore it? Or are there times where the gossip gets so loud that you actually do a story saying, this isn't a story? No, you absolutely ignore it. As a professional journalist, gossip is gossip. You ignore it. And I thought the police made a mistake. I thought the police added a sort of legitimacy to it which didn't exist before and then enabled people to report it. Um, You know, we can't underestimate the flood, the huge quantities of misinformation and disinformation circulating around the world. They're incredibly dangerous. Um, To get back to conspiracy theories, one of my particular um, things is 9-11, the 9-11 conspiracy theories. There are now 22, by the way, 22 different ones. They're all mutually contradictory, of course. And um, uh, I've been lucky enough to be given a contract for a new book, and as part of the new book, I'm going to track down the author of number 22 uh, because I really, really want to speak to her. Now, number 22 says that a space weapon in space fired a beam which hit the Twin Towers and zapped them. Uh, Now, the author says this happened at the same moment the planes flew into them as well. 
So it's a bad luck. Absolutely. So, um, and I, I looked at this woman, and she has a book online which is selling a lot. For all I know, uh, sorry, Gareth, it might well outsell mine. And I picked up her book, and um, you know, you've said nice things about my um, my background and experience that, that are written in the beginning of my book. But I'm an amateur compared with this woman. She got somebody to write a foreword which said, "You are now holding in your hands." the most important book of the 21st century. Then she goes on to discuss her theory. So I am desperate to talk to her. Apart from anything else, I want to know what happened to the space weapon. I mean, this amazing thing, zap the buildings, is it still floating around out there? Has it gone to another dimension? Or is it going to be used in the future? You know, I I mentioned this, and you quite rightly laugh. But if you track the use of most conspiracy theories around the world, you will find that they are often used by dangerous people for very dangerous ends. Mm. I've had some quite... People who I previously thought were quite intelligent question the moon landings and uh, 9-11 as well. And they told me that they'd been sent the information by a friend on Facebook, and I said to them... So what was the source of the information originally? It didn't occur to them what, what, that that was important. And, and it's leading to a more fundamental question. How much do we in the media have to take... How much blame do we share about the erosion of trust? Because this is what, this is what it comes down to, isn't it? I mean, there was a day that once what you saw and read in the Otago Daily Times or probably TV1 in the 60s and 70s, whatever it was, you thought that that was true and we had a single source of information, didn't we? We'd all watched the Holmes programme last night or whatever it was. Now, in the palm of your hand, you have a, the equivalent of multiple wire agencies and CNN in your hand. You've got it all there. So people, it's trust that they go to and how much do we need to take some of the blame for the erosion of trust? I think the principal blame lies with politicians and corporations who've told such big lies and got caught out in it, like the origins of uh, going to Iraq in 2003 for the war, which I was there for TV3. That's the principal blame. I think journalists are also to blame. We haven't... Can we stop on Iraq? Because because the media bought that story too, didn't they? And this is one of the things that comes back to me. 2003, the Iraq war invasion. Stories run in the Sunday Times in London. Anonymous sources. New York Times. Yeah, New York Times. Yep. I can't remember the reporter's name. She Judith was Judith Miller. Okay, yep. Judith Miller, and they all took these anonymous officials and said, "Oh, weapons of mass destruction." And I, re- I wonder whether that was one landmark where we really, as a as a profession, we massively let our audience down because we played a role in going to Iraq. I mean, we in the media. We did absolutely. Uh, I mean, a reporter has to trust their sources to an extent. There are lots of very good, reliable sources that led to my reporting in this story. Um, Judith Miller, by the way, was sleeping with her source, so that's an absolute no-no. Um, but, you know, you're right, Iraq in 2003 was a huge contribution to the breakdown in trust. 
it had an interesting follow-on for me. Um, one of the stories that I investigated, which is in the book, is about the human shields of the first Gulf War. These are people who were flown in on a plane, landed in Kuwait, as the invasion was started, taken hostage, used as human shields. It was the only plane to land that day. All other planes were turned away. As I was investigating this in the UK, a Liberal Democratic MP took up the case and asked some questions in the House of Commons. He asked the questions of Jeff Hoon, who was the Labour Defence Minister. So he asked the question and Hoon batted him away. And at the end, he said, uh, Norman, he said, I need to speak to you outside. And so uh, there they go, private conversation. And he says, Norman, you should be aware of, be wary of that Stephen Davis. He said, you know what? Some people say he's a fantasist. And Norman relayed this to me, and I thought, isn't that rich coming from the man whose government faked up a weapons of mass destruction dossier, totally fantastical, as an excuse for going to war in Iraq? But that's another example of one of the tools in the book, of course, Shoot the Messenger. It's well, a classic. Or character assassination. Absolutely. And I think that you... Uh you detail that technique in the book, and it's used here in New Zealand, isn't it? You, yeah. you, you'll see Nicky Haga puts a book out, no matter what you think of him, the governments I've seen, Labour and national governments do this over the years, call him a, a, a conspiracy theorist, and um, they, they try and blacken the character. And, and there, are, there are quiet calls made. Oh, I think you should uh, be aware that mm -hmm. um, such and such. So that's another classic technique, isn't it? It isn't. The shame is that we are uh, a bit prone to this in New Zealand, um, and um, I call it the behind-closed-doors technique. Because we are a small country, and because a lot of people know a lot of people, uh, there aren't many strangers in New Zealand, it's all too easy for somebody to make a call. Oh, you know me. You, you know I'm reliable. You, you be careful of this person. Mm. Or somebody to come and knock on your door and say... You shouldn't really pursue the story. I can tell you absolutely it's not true. And I would turn to the person as editor of the Herald and say, well, if you're denying it, let's go outside and talk to one of my reporters and deny it on the record. Oh, no, no, I don't want to do that. So it's this kind of behind closed doors, everybody knows everybody else. And New Zealand also, I think, is particularly prone to pressures on the media from advertisers for the same reason. Now, you and I know that all journalists eventually get that thing from an advertiser that says, oh, we advertise in your publication or on your TV station, you know, what are you doing this for? But I think more of it happens in New Zealand because we're a small community. Mm. What is your view or assessment of the New Zealand media right now? What is the state of play in, in your view? I think um, the kind of journalism that I did intelligent, long-form current affairs for assignment at Television New Zealand and the old versions of 2020 and 60 Minutes are largely gone. And I think that's a great shame. Um, uh, we have excellent radio, which is terrific. But what New Zealand really needs, in my view, is a properly funded public broadcaster. Um, you know, you I mean was in television broadcast. Yes, you know, I was in Australia for um, uh, part of the book tour and did a lot of interviews on the ABC, and uh, I've done interviews for the on the BBC. And I come back to New Zealand. I think we're really lacking that. 
a TV public broadcaster, preferably without any advertising, I don't think that's too idealistic, actually properly funded with an ethical mandate to cover the community, to do proper reporting. That's what this country lacks. Why do you think we're so reluctant, governments of either stripe, to actually do this? There's many things about New Zealand which I think just happen without us taking it, paying close attention. It's because we're a nice people. It's because we're... I mean, I'm an Aucklander. Sorry, Dunedinites, but really enjoying relocating to Dunedin. We're a nice people. We're a community. We're relaxed. Sometimes we don't want to get too pent up and angry about things. And while we're not getting pent up and angry, things are done in our name, which later on we think, maybe that isn't such a good idea. Like suddenly somebody came to you and said, well, perhaps TVNZ should be different. Maybe it should carry ads. Maybe it should be a different kind of broadcaster. I sometimes think we don't want the, the New Zealanders to have the anger and the, the vicious political discourse of those other countries, but maybe we should get a bit more angry more often about the things that are worth getting angry about. Mm. And you spent some considerable time working in television in New Zealand, covered some fascinating uh, stories, uh, particularly interested in uh, the book about uh, the Official Secrets Act and running foul of that. Tell us um, how, that, uh, how that played out. Yes, the um, Official Secrets Act um, is this tremendously draconian thing which the Brits use, uh, they say to stop national secrets coming out, but actually it's mostly used to stop journalism uh, that they don't like. Um, There's a famous uh, war book called Bravo to Zero, based on probably the most famous military mission of all time, uh, written by a man called Andy McNabb. It's the best-selling war book of all time, I think. Uh, This man, whose real name is uh, Stephen Billy Mitchell was on this mission, and he was there with a New Zealander. The New Zealander is described in the book as Mark the Kiwi. Uh, As I was sitting there reading the book at Television 3, being a fairly straightforward sort of character, I thought to myself, I wonder if Mark the Kiwi is a New Zealander, and if so, could I find him and interview him? So the British government had allowed McNabb's book to be published, and it was a bestseller. So I tracked down Mark the Kiwi, who sure enough is a New Zealander, a man in the New Zealand SAS who went to Britain, and he's writing his own book called Soldier 5. His book portrays a very, very different account of events. McNabb's book is a classic British daring do, a tale of heroism, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Mark the Kiwi's book, Mike Coburn, was extremely critical of the British military and the government and the mission. So here's what the Brits did. They allowed the McNabb book to be published, and when we sought to get Mike's interview on television in New Zealand, they hit us like a hammer with an injunction, brought lawyers, spent over a million pounds sterling on their lawyers, took us all the way to the top court in New Zealand. We finally won, thankfully, because by that stage, TVNZ had run up a million dollars worth of legal bills. But they hammered poor Mike with the Official Secrets Act. He was forced to sign it. He was ordered by his superior officer to sign it. So he could not lawfully refuse that order. And they harassed him. And the sad thing is now, I can tell you, Andy McNabb is a multimillionaire. He has a chateau in France. He's on his fifth wife, apparently. And uh, Mike is still working on the circuit as a security man and and living in Singapore. 
and punished because he tried to tell mm. the truth. Tell them what the mission was. The oh, yes. So Bravo 2-0 was they went behind enemy lines in the first Gulf War and they, their job was to find the Scud missiles. Uh, for those of you who recall, there was a huge issue because Saddam was firing Scud missiles into Israel in an attempt to get the Israelis to join the war. If the Israelis had joined the war, the coalition, which at that stage included um, a lot of Arab countries, would have broken up because of the various dynamics with Israel. So, um, and, and the funny thing is, McNabb made up parts of his story, whereas he didn't really need to do. I had a classic moment in this interview. He, McNabb describes being tortured, for those of you who've read the book, terrible torture, and has had his teeth pulled out and so forth. So I'm sitting there with the Kiwi guy, and I said, what about the torture? And he said, well, we were in the same prison. We were in the cell next door, and we were released on the same day. He said, I've got an interesting photo to show you. So he pulls out the photo, and there's McNabb and the Kiwi guy, both there, smiling at the camera, perfect set of white teeth. <laughs> but do you know what? I have tried to get the story done in Britain for a number of times. It's now in the book, which is published in Britain. Thank you, Gareth. Um, and McNabb scares off the British media because these days, if somebody sues a media company can spend a fortune defending it, and even if you win, you've lost because it's taken an enormous amount of your budget. Mm. This area of war reporting, and especially when it comes to special forces operations, is really fraught, isn't it? And I think we all know in New Zealand, it's, um, you get someone like Willie Apiata and you, you hear the story and there's an official citation about what went on in the Hindu Kush, but you, you don't really know, do you? And, you? and you're fighting this sort of heroism thing, right? Your job is to get the truth, which might be unpalatable. Um, you're coming up against this might of a military machine, no matter what country it is. They really do not want anything that's going to make them look bad. And we've seen this too with um, Hit and Run with Nicky Hager and John Stevenson, haven't we, too? And this, this has gone to an inquiry. So it's a really fraught area, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's, some of it is classically the fog of war. I mean, um, if there's a conflict going on, uh, the reporter is not walking dispassionately watching the two sides shoot each other and taking notes and saying, oh, that person shot there and that civilian was hit there. They're doing what everybody else did and hiding and trying to stay alive. Um, to go back to the McNabb and Mike story, one moment where he was wounded, the Kiwi... In the interview, the Kiwi says, I was screaming my head off in pain. In McNabb's interview, he says, the Kiwi was hit and I couldn't hear anything. Now, it may be that McNabb is lying out of guilt about leaving the wounded man there, but it may be that there were shells exploding and the adrenaline's pumping and, you know, this is not black and white. This is the reality of war. Are we too frightened as journalists sometimes to admit that we don't know? And, and to leave and, and to say exactly what you've said. Yeah. Like, isn't, can't that be quite powerful? We seem most, most journalists seem to want to write the story as though it was just one, one way, and, that, and that's the story. This is what happened. I'll tell you, I'll show you the truth. So, some, what's wrong with saying, we're not sure that this could have happened, this could have happened? You... You're totally right. Uh, I um, lecture and teach a lot of journalism students around the world. Um, I have a course um, next year at the University of Otago, but I've taught in Australia and Britain. I really hammer it home to the students. First off, 
Life is not black and white. Issues are not black and white. You do not have to reach a black and white conclusion. Secondly, even if you investigate something exhaustively, I've had you know the BA149 story, maybe just because I'm slow, but I've been investigating that for 29 years. Um, and I still don't know the whole truth about what happened. We absolutely have to say, to get the public to trust us, to admit when we're wrong mm. and to say when we don't know things. The admitting when we're wrong part is really interesting. When I was editor of The Herald, I decided we needed to be upfront about our errors and our mistakes. So I told everybody we were going to introduce a column called We Got It Wrong. Wow, the fuss, the management, the advertising people, the branding people. Stephen, you can't possibly do that. You can't possibly say we got it wrong. I said, why not? I believe people will trust a media organisation more if it owns up to its mistakes and it's honest. Um, I have a colleague, Peter Frey, in Australia who tried to do the same thing with the Sydney Morning Herald. We were talking in Sydney recently and we both realised the day I left the Herald, the We Got It Wrong column disappeared forever. And the day he left the Sydney Morning Herald, his We Got It Wrong column disappeared forever. I think it's a real shame. How did the reporters feel about it when you instituted that? Once I explained it to them, absolutely fine. And the readers? I, uh, well, yes, the readers liked it. <clears throat> and, and we, you know, it, it ran for quite a while. And you've got to be able to correct your mistakes. Um, as, as part of developing trust. One of the terrible things that's happened in the last 30 years is that trust in journalism has plummeted. Okay, So if you add that to the mix we're talking about before, if you add that to information disorder and people finding clever ways to lie to you and journalists not having the resources, if you add the final factor that you don't even trust maybe good journalism when you see it, that's a recipe for disaster, not only for journalism but for society. I mean, trust me, you'll miss us if we're gone. And we'll talk... Let's do that um, towards the end about okay. what the solutions may be and yep. what you think... Because um, we want to end on a good note, right? But yes. T t tell, me what, um, tell me what your motivation is. What, what has motivated you to, to, to do this, to write this book and, and to go on this particular path? I'd like to uh, just read a short... Um, piece from the book, to I think it answers that question quite well, and to explain the kind of thing that drives me, the kind of thing that keeps me going for years when, when it seems pretty hopeless to get the story. Um, this is from the toolbox, the toolbox of deception. It's called Delay, 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 Until Everyone Gets Bored. Richard Sashko had reached the end of his shift at Avis Car Rentals near Sydney's domestic airport. It was midnight and he was ready to go home after it had been a quiet night. As usual, Richard had bought a meal packed by his grandmother. He was a quiet but not unfriendly young man, and was known to his colleagues as an honest hard worker. There was never any trouble when Richard was around. Richard walked to the dimly lit car park where his pride and joy, a red Holden Commodore with a V8 engine, was parked. A colleague on her way home saw him reach the car, and noticed that someone was sitting in the passenger seat. The car must have been unlocked. The co-worker could not identify the other person as the car was too far away, but for some reason she felt alarmed. She delayed driving off, pretending to look for something in her own vehicle while keeping the Commodore in sight in her rearview mirror. Richard had a conversation with whoever was inside and then got in. Things must be okay, she thought. And as she drove away, 
she saw the lights of Richard's car come on. At about 12.40am on that Sunday, after Richard left work at Avis, 40 minutes later, a witness being dropped home in a taxi spotted the red Commodore. It had been abandoned in Ashfield, near Richard's home, nine kilometres from his workplace. The damaged car was parked across a driveway, blocking it and obstructing the road. Richard loved the car. He never would have left it in that state. And whoever had been driving had abandoned it in a hurry as they had left the driver's door open. There was no sign of Richard. It would be 11 days before the police got round to looking into the abandoned car and made the connection with Richard's disappearance. The work colleague's glimpse in the rear-view mirror as she drove away from the Avis office was the last time anyone saw Richard Sashko alive. It was now Sunday, 14 May, 1995, Mother's Day. Richard was an only child, and his mum, Rosie, would never have a Mother's Day again. I spoke to Rosie recently when we were in Sydney. Um, If I hope you get a chance to read the book, you will end up feeling as angry as I am at the sheer incompetence of a police investigation which led to them failing to prosecute anybody for the murder of Richard Sasko. And just an interesting New Zealand twist, a man who I can tell you 100% killed him is alive and well and living in New Zealand today. Really? Yes. (laughs) And, um, you know... First off, you don't want to get too emotional about these things. You have to make a a certain detachment as a journalist. But equally, I think injustices are what we should be on about. Injustices is what we should be trying to correct. And if people like me and you and other investigative reporters didn't come along and help Rosie and tell that story, it would have been buried. It would have been buried by the New South Wales police never to see again. So not only does the murderer go free, but the incompetence of their investigation never gets to the light of day. So how can we encourage more people to do what you have done and to, to, I guess, take out their arms in in this war um, for truth? Yeah. I... um Well, two things, one journalistically and one about you as individuals. Uh, Journalistically, I try and encourage people to become investigative reporters. Uh, I explain to my students it's a life of uh, victories and sometimes catastrophic defeats. Uh, One of the natures of the things, as you know, is you can spend months or longer investigating a story and in the end there's no story or you fail to get to the bottom of it. Um, We've got to instill that powerful sense of idealism, which was present, I think, when you and I went into journalism about what journalism could achieve. Uh, Number two, we have to continue to explain to the public the value of journalism. And here's a couple of things you all and others can do. One is, please, please pay for your journalism. Okay? If you want free journalism, you're going to get rubbish and you're going to get propaganda. Good journalism costs money. Pay for a digital subscription donate money to The Guardian, buy the Otago Daily Times, you know, pay for your journalism to keep good journalism going. And the final thing is you must all individually take responsibility for the information you share and consume online. 
You may say, I did not create the falsehood. I'm just passing it on. But do you really want to be a string of millions of part of a string of millions of people around the world passing on falsehoods? It's like, you know, the getaway driver in the bank robbery. I only help them flee the scene. Well, you're as responsible for the bank robbery as anybody else. So you all need to look at what you consume and pass on. For a start, we could share less, I think, on Facebook and others. Uh, studies show that many people share things without even checking the source. Many people retweet tweets without even getting to the bottom of the 140 characters. <laughs> Can I have a quick show of hands about who, who bought the ODT at least once over the last week? Oh. See, that's pretty good. You, see, that's you, you, do good. It, you do something like this in Auckland and it's, you know, you're getting one or two yeah. hands go up. I mean, the paper here is, is, is very strong, which is great. What about um, if Facebook is a, is a significant source of news for you guys? Yeah? No? Nobody wants to put their hand up now. <laughs> see, that, that's, that's interesting because, you, um, lovely as you are, you, you're probably not representative of uh, in yeah. New Zealand where Facebook is a, is a major source of, yeah. of news and, and that's with them. Well, we, I was going well, to take questions, so I'll take one now. What's that? What about the stuff that's kept out of the ODT? <laughs> uh, well, I can't speak to the ODT. Every... Or kept out of Radio New Zealand. I mean, every form of, you understand that every form of journalism requires some element of editing and limiting of the uh, news. Um, and, and you have to rely on trusted professionals to do it fairly. Well, can, can I get some context for that question? And then we'll kick it around, I promise you. What, yeah. what do you mean, the stuff that's left out? What are you talking about? I'm talking about the narrative that we probably tell ourselves as a first world democracy. Yes. I.e., there's too many of us on the planet. We're trashing it. I. Okay. We're oppressing other people while we do it. It's an unpleasant story, but we really have to start addressing these things. Okay. I'll tell you that I put a lot of it in front of you guys for the last 10 years, and I can tell you just how much gets repressed. Okay. Fair enough. So, so basically, the, the source of the question, and there's a lot of big stuff in there, which we won't completely go into, not because I'm, you know, suppressing you or anything, but um, I guess the idea is, and it's a fair one, um, that, well, at the heart of that question is, is the news media and are the journalists themselves personally biased and following only stories that fit their news judgment? How, how open are we to stuff that doesn't fit with our narrative, I guess, is, is the question. You've been in a lot of newsrooms. What motivates people? Do they bring their own prejudices to their work and put them out to, to the public? We all have our own prejudices. Most good journalists I know set them aside. It always drives me crazy when journalists say, oh, look, you hear some people saying everybody's prejudiced, everybody's biased. They're usually the people who want to be biased and don't want to take the trouble. You know, I point to the Dewey system. Now it has its faults, but it's worked perfectly well in Western society for hundreds of years. It relies on this. You get 12 random people in a room. They look at the evidence in front of them. They come, try and come to the fairest conclusion they can. Journalists can do that. That's what a good journalist does. Um, in terms of the broader issue, those complex stories absolutely should be told. But here's the problem. One day earlier this year, 27 million people apparently were looking at a picture of an egg online on social media. 
27 people looking at a picture of an egg. For my new book, I have looked at all the things that were happening in the world that day that did not get reported, and you would be astonished. So partially, I have to say, not necessarily this group, because none of you are going to own up to it. Oh, come on, who looked at the picture of the egg? Wow. Good for you. I don't even know what what you have to do is actually not look at the picture of the egg, look at the more important stuff, and if it's not there in your publication or media, demand it. Um, You know, a lot of this stuff just exists to satisfy what people think are your wishes. If you said, I just want a lot of very long-form stories on the environment and world news and so forth, and demanded it of your media organisation, and if enough of you demanded it, that's what they would provide. Mm. Let's have some other questions. Uh, All right, well, you've got the mic. That gives you that position as most of the law, Um, isn't it? It's interesting, the response to this gentleman's question here. You've said people are not biased. Then a sentence later, you said the jury system in the Western world has worked perfectly for 200 years. To what extent do you think the Maori, indigenous Australians or black Americans would concur with that sentence? Um, could I just say, I, I, said it, I didn't say it had worked perfectly. That's I, literally the sentence I, I you used. I've just I, repeated it oh, verbatim. Did I say perfectly? Yes, you did. Oh, I wasn't taking notes. Apologies then. I certainly didn't intend to say perfectly. I merely meant that it is possible for people to put their prejudices aside and look at evidence in front of them and come to a fair conclusion, and it has been shown. In answer to your question about the United States, absolutely not. And, of course, there's a long history of truly appalling uh, jury and other behaviour, um, uh, some of which I investigated when I was in the United States for two years. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because... Um you know, in some countries, media is just openly partisan. They don't try and hide their bias at all. Um, and you got that to an extent in, in, in Britain with the papers, didn't you? Um, where yep. if someone's reading The Guardian on the subway, I kind of know where your politics is. If they were reading The Telegraph, I kind of know where your politics is. If, 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 if I'm in America and, and I tell you I'm watching Fox News, you're kind of like... Yeah. rush away in your car and drive somewhere else. We think or, you were simple. But you, you, you know what I mean. So, but in, in New Zealand... Partly because we're a small market, maybe because we're also a bit fucker man, we're a bit sort of you know shy about this stuff. We don't we don't um, entertain that idea, do we? We don't we we don't tolerate a paper like the Herald couldn't say that they were a left wing paper or something now, could they? No. So why, I mean, why do you think that New Zealand adopts that attitude, which it, it pretends? And I wonder whether we we do this too much. We pretend. We pretend that we don't have a certain worldview, but there is a worldview. There is. I don't think we should apologise for being New Zealanders, for being you know, reasonably nice people, for not embracing political extremes. Long may it continue. And because we don't embrace too many political extremes, we tend to moderate in the centre. And sometimes that can come out as being kind of self-satisfied, but, but I really think it's not. And, um, you know, in terms of independence, I've had fierce arguments with colleagues and friends, very smart people, about the idea of uh, independent journalism. I'm regarded, by the way, as very, very eccentric in journalism because I decided right from the start I would be independent. So be prepared to condemn me now. I've never voted. I have never joined a political party, a club, any other organisation at all. And that's so I could look at politicians in the eye and say... 
I didn't vote for you. I'm never going to vote for you or anybody else. Um, I, I think our society, New Zealand society, I think we need to hold on to that middle ground by mm. the way because I think the rest of the world, too many areas mm. are splintering into extremes. Mm. Now, we had a few other hands go up, didn't we? There's one here and there's one over here too. So we'll keep an eye on that. I think... I'm not sure if this is on, but yeah, it sounds like it's on now. Um, do you think that um, what you're talking about is actually changing the nature of what it means to be human? Oh, you mean in terms of our natural biases? and? No, you... I mean in terms of how we're becoming more and more trivial and less and less uh, critical in terms of our thinking. With social media, are With you social so- yeah. media? Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. So the, the the for the new book, I'm I'm looking at some amazing studies that have been done on the way social media works and the way our brains work in engaging with social media. And absolutely, I think there is a there is, as we know, a social isolation effect. Um, and that, of course, if you combine the social is- isolation of media with the propensity to believe conspiracy theories, for instance, as an example, you get real trouble. Um, And I do think part of it is because it's all so rapid. Um, Somebody told me, by the way, that each year the total amount of digital information created is equal to all the information created in the rest of human history. So we're talking huge volumes. It's travelling around the world so fast that we barely have time to stop and comprehend it. Mm. So I do think it's damaging our critical faculties. And I do think what happens, sadly, is people give up. This is all too much for me to cope with. There's too much of it, and I'll just ignore it. But the trouble with that is when you start doing that, the governments and corporations and other people who want to lie to you, that's their opportunity. Mm. You start ignoring stuff and not engaging with it at all, they can lie to you more successfully. Can I just throw in a controversial comment in support of social media before, um, before we throw in? Um, just, I mean, it isn't, it, as you said, it isn't black and white, is it? I remember when I was working as a newspaper journalist on the Evening Post in Wellington, and you'd write a story and you'd think you're the fount of all knowledge, and, and you, you might get a letter a week later hmm. saying, you were wrong on this point here, I was an expert there at the time, and the letter might not even have been published in, in, in the newspaper. Nowadays, I can have a story on radio, an interview or whatever, within five seconds, someone's gone, actually, you were wrong, in 1982, here's the, here's the yeah. link... And so there's a democratisation process as well. It's not all one way, is it? No. I mean, there are citizen, there are genuine people who take photographs of a police doing something dreadful and put it on social media, and that leads to, to change. So I, I do want to throw that out there, that it's not just this evil social media thing that, that is killing everything else. I think it's, it's my view, it's a bit more com- complex. Than yeah, that. I mean, the, you, technology, the technology... Is fine. I mean, Facebook in theory mm. is fine, but the problem is in reality, and I've said this in recent interviews, you know, Facebook, uh, I think, is the world's most socially irresponsible company now because it is a publisher and broadcaster, but refuses to allow itself to be responsible as a publisher and broadcaster for things that appear on their platform. It's a, it's a huge um, issue of corporate irresponsibility. And if they're not going to do anything about it, things that appear on their own platform, 
um, you know, it's, it's left to us, we individuals to sort of take up the mantle. As I said, share less, maybe go <laughs> on Facebook less. Force them into adopting higher standards. You cannot tell me because every time I go on Facebook within three seconds they've sent me this brilliantly tailored ad on whatever I just typed in, you cannot tell me that they cannot develop algorithms to stop a lot of this stuff. When they were really forced into tackling ISIS videos online by public pressure and governmental pressure, they did so. A lot of these other issues, they simply haven't given it the attention it deserved. Mm. There's a question over here. Sure, if it's a personal question or not. From my days working for Wilson and Horton, uh, could I ask when you were at the Herald? Oh. I was there from 72 to 88. Well, that's fantastic. You would have been there when I was a um, cadet at the Herald in the 70s. Um, this is really showing my age when they were still bashing type into stone downstairs in Auckland to print the paper, and I was uh, editor in the years from 1999 to 2001. Yep. a very concise question. What, what did you do at the Herald, sir? <coughs> ah, very good. Yeah, I think we might. Yeah, we're not going to... We're going to end up in who was in the store's office, you know, so we, let's not go there. We're going to go down the rabbit hole. Um, over here. Uh, this sort of leaps off Akala's question. How do we put aside our prejudices if we're not actually really honest and aware of them? A line that was spun out almost ad infinitum after the terrorist attacks in Christchurch was, this is not us. So, yeah, I know I, that's a big yeah. question. But... Talk, about, talk about Christchurch, uh, not too much, I think, because <laughs> a lot has been talked about. First off, um, I think that New Zealand society, you know, handled it pretty well. Let's face it, we were all pretty glad that he wasn't a homegrown terrorist, that he was an Australian. Um, that's the truth of the matter. If you write a book called Truth Teller, you've got to be honest. Um, I think we don't need to use his name to um, discuss anything. I think that um, nobody needs to see videos of people being killed. I think we've slightly made a mistake in his so-called manifesto because... I think as a journalist you have to read this sort of stuff to understand it. But here's an interesting thing about the Christchurch shooter, which you may not be aware of. Um, to get back to conspiracy theories, a lot of conspiracy theories are shapeshifters. They're adapted by different people for different ends. There's an anti-NGO conspiracy, NGOs being non-governmental organisations. Putin says NGOs are a secret plot to put Western values into Russia. Erdogan says NGOs are a secret plot to put Western values into Turkey. The Christchurch shooter adapted his own version of the anti-NGO, which was the NGOs that were carrying those poor people from Syria and fleeing that horrible con conflict across the Mediterranean, helping them get into Europe, were part of a secret plot whose goal was to get as many Muslims into Europe as possible, to have as many babies as possible, to overwhelm the white man. So here was a theory which had been adapted and by different people for different ends. And that gets back to my point about danger. We might think these are laughable, but all it needs is a disgruntled, socially isolated person with access to guns to believe it, and we see a tragedy like that.
Mm. There's another question over here too, wasn't there? If New Zealand ever got a government that wanted to strengthen investigative and critical journalism, what um, could that utopian government do in terms of legislation to achieve that? Ah, well, they would have to um, they would have to abandon a lot of their instinct for secrecy. Would be happy with that. Unfortunately, politicians will never ever do it. And by the way, this will be the politicians of the party you support, just yes. as easy as the politicians of the party you oppose. Their instinct is to control the flow of information. They only want the good stuff out there that makes them look good. They don't want any of the bad stuff out there. They are never, ever going to adopt a free flow of information. They have to be forced, kicking and screaming, by journalists and citizens demanding things. One of the sad things about Western um, society at the moment is that Freedom of Information Acts, which were supposedly designed to give you the information that was yours about what your government was doing, have become so strangled. Um, I used to give my students a test uh, of filing Freedom of Information Act requests. And within weeks, they'd be very excited at the start, oh, we can find out stuff, we can get stuff. And within weeks, they'd give up in frustration because what would happen is you would file an information request saying, I want the minutes or the decision of this committee on this day, and you'd get back a reply saying, uh, no, 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 because it was this subcommittee, and they'll just take you down the rabbit hole and round the houses again and again and again, finally months later, hoping you, you actually go away. Just a little bit further to that, um, just picking up on the nuts and bolts of journalism um, in lots of newsrooms where there are only a handful of journalists, sort of a couple of hundred emails every day, outnumbered five or six to one by PR people or communications people. What's the solution to that? Do you see that there is one? Yes, sadly, uh, and I talk to colleagues who will say this, they're stuck in the office and they're doing four stories a day and monitoring social media and hardly ever get out to talk to anybody. That's not journalism, that's just kind of loosely recording some of the events of the day. Real journalism involves going to places. Uh, one of the uh, things in the book is about the tyranny of distance still. Um, if you're a dictator in some African country and you want to massacre your citizens, you know the thing you must absolutely have to do is keep Western reporters away with their cameras. An example is Congo, where this terrible tragedy has happened for 30 years, killing 17 million people, and it's not very well reported because it's a hard place to get to. Journalists need to be able to travel. They need to be able to get to places. They need to be able to get out of the office and talk to citizens. They need to, you know, do what we, we called when we started actual reporting. Um, again, the only way that more reporters are going to be hired and media organisations are going to invest more in real journalism is in your hands. If enough people start paying, you know, on an optimistic note, the New York Times now has two and a half million digital subscribers. Uh, last year, apparently a million people donated money to The Guardian to support their journalism. It's in your hands. You will get the journalism you pay for and if you just want the free stuff, you're just going to get cheap social media stuff and propaganda. There's a question over here. I just want to comment, uh, basically, you don't have to stay on Facebook. And there is good stuff online. There's an outfit called Scoop News, which is a 
uh, New Zealand's News Foundation, which you can donate to. And I get feeds every day from this organisation, and which gives me reliable information, including all the press releases from all the various organisations. And also, of course, you can visit the Guardian we uh, website and donate it. And also my homepage for international general news is the BBC. Mm. Yeah, I don't think anyone's saying that the internet's a bad pl place, no. uh, full stop. Um, oh, no, the internet's wonderful. I'm just speaking about, I think, Facebook We're talking about policies. info wars. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to ask one first. Is that all right? And then we'll come to you. I, I wonder how well we are serving our audiences in the media with the lack of diversity of our reporters. Because if you, and we talked about the golden era of the 70s and stuff, but I bet you that Herald Newsroom was 99% Parker at that time. And I'm not making a big statement about that, fine. But if, you, if you've got Māori and Asian communities and um, a d diverse New Zealand, I mean, Auckland, for example, is a hyper-diverse city, right? There's 40% of people in Auckland were born overseas. Mm. And, that's not, and then you've got the Māori population and Polynesian population as well. But the newsrooms are full of white people. Nothing wrong with white people, but you aren't going to, you aren't going to tell everyone's story. You can't ex possibly expect a reporter to have the, the world view that might serve those communities. Are you concerned about that? Yes, and um, uh, Vernishing, this came up a, a couple of years ago when I was teaching journalism in Australia. The Hill Newsroom, by the way, when I started, was 100% um, was uh, white. Is that right? 100%? Uh, yes. And... Um, and, uh, and largely about male. 90, and about 90% male, yeah. uh, just to get a few other... About um, a 95% serious smokers. Mm. And, um, and uh, the very interesting thing is when I started as a cadet on the Herald, I was so naive, I literally didn't know where the men went at 5 o'clock in the evening and why they came back so cheerful at 7 o'clock. <laughs> I finally found out when I was invited to have my first beer... But look, this whole thing about uh, getting the right democratic spread of journalism is very serious. We don't do it well, do when, we? When I was on the, um, I was uh, running a journalism school in Australia called Maclay College. It was based on Sydney and Melbourne. And the ABC, I had a very good relationship with the ABC, and its head approached me one day and practically begged us to have an outreach program because they were desperate to have indigenous Australian journalists, they were desperate to have journalists with an Asian background. Um, and we actually um, developed an outreach program to try and get people into the course. Um, it is an ongoing problem, and you're quite right. We can't tell the stories of the world properly Through while one just representing one part of yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, now there was, I, I pinched your question, didn't I? Do you think there do is a, um, a bias to the 24-7 news cycle, not, not a bias amongst individual journalists, but just a bias to the whole structure of the thing that insists that news be turned over between bulletins and certainly on a daily basis so that there's, there's this constant seeking out of the new and the oppositional at the expense of, of burrowing down into things and actually getting to the bottom of them. How often do you hear on the radio something, a story that's broken half an hour ago, and in that time they've found the one bozo in the country who's offended by it or who disagrees <laughs> with it? I, interesting to use the word oppositional. I think what journalism uh, has been done great damage uh, by the policies of 24-hour news channels, for instance, 
Because what happens is news is quite hard. You have to employ journalists, camera people. You have to send them places to cover the news. What's very much easier is to fill hour after hour with two people shouting at each other and disagreeing. That, by the way, is cheap TV and doesn't cost you very much money. And what happens, as you said, we have a story break, people cover it, there might be some genuine experts called in to comment on it, but a few hours later when they're looking to fill the time and space, you're going to have two people shouting at each other about the issue. <laughs> Let's take these two questions, eh, and then, we'll, and then we're done. So should we start up here? And then we've got, um, I think it might Scott be two. <clears throat> a question here. Hi. Could you just make a comment, please, on what appears to be a need to always show both sides of a story, even if maybe both sides are not equally valid? This has been a real issue for journalists and exacerbated, of course, in the era of Donald Trump. Um, and this is part of the difficulty in engaging with a world of social media. So he tweets something, and then maybe later on a journalist writing for the TV station or online or the newspaper may point out what he has tweeted as wrong, but meantime millions of people have seen the false tweet. The problem is that as a journalist I have to say to you, I can't not quote the President of the United States and he is entitled to his point of view even though we might disagree with it. So I guess the answer is I talk a lot to my students about attribution. So if you're covering politics, you know, Labour entitled to a point of view on the health system, National are entitled to their point of view on the health system, you, you have to quote them both to do the job, but you should be very careful in your attribution. And crucially, when you know something is absolutely wrong, somebody has just stated something that is not a fact, that is made up, as happens with that uh, individual, then you have to say that as well. Mm. You get the issue, though, of sort of false equivalence, don't you? Like, or, or you, you're doing a story on climate change. Do you go off and, and report the, the, the one scientist after, out of a thousand who says, oh, it's not really happening? Uh, that, yeah, that's the kind yeah. of problem you get into, isn't it, with the, with the, with there are two sides of the story. There is not, sometimes, I mean, there isn't, a, there isn't a story that, you know, Hitler's side of the story that he was actually a good guy is not probably not a side of the story that you want to go down, right? right? Yeah. So there, is, there are situations where it's kind of just like they don't deserve equal weight. Is that kind of... No, I, I guess that's right. And you should mention, I, I did five interviews with uh, radio journalists, uh, radio uh, DJs and journalists in Queensland. There's something about Queensland, man. Every single one of them asked me when I was talking about conspiracy theories, and I'd be talking about 9-11 and these other things, every single one suddenly said, what about climate change? Mm. And I kind of had to pause. I mean, this is live radio, and I don't want to slag them off because I am actually trying to sell the book. But then say to them, well, I think, you know, the science on this is, is, is pretty clear. Um, but again, to, to take climate change, you know, the, clearly a lot of it is extremely factual, but there are areas that we don't know, and there are areas which oh, are sure. still grey well, areas, and journalism to, needs sure, to reflect that. Yeah. Okay, final question, because I think we are running out of time. Uh, the European Union recently passed Article 11, which um, essentially uh, encourages governments in the EU to tax um, businesses for linking and quoting other websites in their own websites. 
What kind of influence do you think this is going to have on journalism, both there and around the rest of the world? I think what they're doing in Europe is a first step. Um, among my other issues with Facebook, by the way, and Google, we should mention them, is they pretty much destroyed local journalism worldwide. It used to be said that uh, local journalism would lose the traditional print classified advertising, but it would be replaced by an equal amount or greater amount of digital advertising. Why hasn't that happened? Because Facebook and Google have hoovered up all the digital advertising. They're happy to quote the products of media and use them on their site, stuff they haven't paid for or generated themselves, but they take all the advertising. So I happen to think that tax is a good idea. Mm. All right. Look, um, thanks for being such a great audience. Thanks for your great questions. And um, mainly thank you to you, Stephen. Stephen Davis. Thank you. You need to mention signing the book. And you'll be, um, you'll be out here signing, signing the book and um, boosting his sales out there too. Um, it's a good read, I can tell you that. Thank you very, very much, people. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival recording was brought to you with funding from a copyright licensing New Zealand grant and with the support of ORFM. The festival receives help from many corners, but we'd like to give special thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council, the Otago Community Trust and the Lion Foundation.